Good evening. I'm Jason, and I work here. Uh, tonight is awesome uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first, and this is, these are in no particular order, is that my mother and my sisters are here, right over there. Uh, yeah, and uh, I'd really love it if my sisters came to school here. So if y'all want to give them a good sales pitch later, that'd be great. Um, and uh, the second is Susanna uh, Venable, who works with us on staff. She's, um, she's going into labor tonight. And uh, yeah, right? So that's awesome. And Ash Wednesday, baby. And that will be probably a big deal some years. Um, probably when she's much older. Um, but actually, before, before we get into anything else sermon-wise, let's pray for her. Would you guys pray, pray for her uh, with me, please? Um, Father, we ask that you... Um, as you bring Davy into this world uh, full of health and, and with as much joy as is possible in, what, in such a weird moment for a baby. Uh, so, uh, uh, but um, pl- please, I, I just pray that the doctors and, and the family and friends of Joseph and Susanna would be so helpful. Um, and we long to meet that kid. Uh, thanks for making her. And uh, help us, any of us who walk with them in their lives, be kind to her and help her to know how much you love her. Um, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. Um, all right, so look, it's the last day of February, uh, and thank God, uh, I hate February. Uh, you may be one of like the few people to get by unscathed, um, and I, I think I bring this up maybe every week during February, yeah, because I feel this way every week. But for most of us, it's a pretty sour month, right? I mean, like sickness there was like a plague going around all town earlier in the month. Their anxiety about decisions, depression, weather, bank accounts are really tight for some reason. And, and in the middle of that fog, a lot of us have to make tons of decisions, like in the middle of all that, you know, and it's just yuck, right? And I, I, know, that, I know that it's not exactly the same season for everybody, um, but sometimes it's just like really hard and you don't even know why. Sometimes it's depressing and you don't know why. Maybe you do. Sometimes it's really tiring. A lot of times it's just full of sad news. And for many of us, it's a season of apathy, right? It might be different from year to year, I think, or person to person, but I'm pretty sure it's a fog for most of us, some kind of low level of darkness. Um, I've been thinking about that today because of our, our, our passage of Scripture and marches tomorrow, and so I'm ready to turn a corner. Uh, and, uh, and friends, God moves into the darkness into the fog, into the apathy and sadness, into the tiredness and depression, into the hardness of life. The light shines in the darkness. Do you remember that that's how the Gospel of John begins? If you're new here, uh, or if you've only come, uh, you know, a couple of times this semester, um, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for coming. Uh, And on Tuesday nights, we've been looking at the Gospel of John. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. Uh, John, one of Jesus' best friends, one of his best friends. Later on in life, much later, he adds uh, sort of to the, to the circulating stories of Jesus' life that are going around the, in the first century. He adds his own account because he wanted people to know that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God and that by believing in him, they could have eternal life. And so when he began his account of Jesus' life, He told us that Jesus was God and was with God in the very beginning and that he's the light of life and that his light shined in the darkness of our world and in the darkness of our hearts. He doesn't leave us alone. (laughs) 
I think it seems safe reading it on a page. Like when I read a verse on a page that says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it, that just reads like poetry to me. But when I've shut a door on a dark room in my life, I don't really like anybody opening it. When we sweep stuff under the rug, we don't like it being lifted up. When we bury something under a rock, we don't like it being turned over. <clears throat> but Jesus doesn't leave us alone. <clears throat> His light shines into the darkness. It's disruptive even. And the darkness has not and will not overcome it. And tonight we're going to be looking at a very particular story that Wynne just read about Lazarus. Well, it's one of the most significant stories in the life of Jesus and in his work and ministry. It's a story of Jesus' power over darkness and the invitation is for us to see. This is this, what the story is about for us. It happened. There's a reason John recorded it for us though. It's for us to see Jesus for who he is and what he is like here and to believe in him. To believe maybe that he has power over darkness, to believe that he can bring dead to life and bring what is dead inside of you and me to life, or at least to believe in him, to trust him, even when we can't yet understand or believe all that he says or does. And so this, the, what we're gonna talk about tonight is it's thick and it's full of grace and power, and those things don't often go together well. They go together perfectly in Christ, and I pray we see it. We're gonna walk through the story a little bit. Let's pray before we walk through the story. Um, Father, you know the temptation I'm facing right now um, to take what you've done and what you've recorded and make it like this pragmatic tool uh, for everyone to get through the week. Many of my friends here I know, Lord, are full of apathy and anxiety and they need help. I need help. But I know that we, that we all need what we all need more than anything else is to believe that your son is who he says he is and who he demonstrates himself to be in this passage of scriptures. So send your spirit now and press upon us the truth of who your son is, who you are. Would you help us see our hunger and our need for him? Would you shine your light even here? Call us out of darkness and into your light. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're we're going to be almost entirely in the chapter of, uh, of John chapter 11 tonight. Um, so if you haven't opened up your Bible yet, I encourage you to do so, um, to look at the story and hear what God has to say to us. If you don't have a Bible, um, we'll get one for you. We'll steal one or something and, or buy one and uh, give it to you. There's lots floating around. And um, uh, if you don't know how to read it, like I'd be happy to meet with you and, and talk to you about how to, how to read it. And we've got a, there's a ton of folks here that do know how to read it. And so maybe just lean to the person next to you and say, what are all these numbers? Uh, so it's a crazy reality. Sometimes I'll sit down with folks, and I think for those of us that have grown up in church, I actually didn't really grow up in church um, much, but uh, for those of us that have grown up in church, we may just assume that everybody knows the numbers and the verses, and like if you've got a study Bible, the notes at the bottom, and what's Bible and what isn't, it looks like this huge coded sheet for some folks. Um, and it may not be very helpful to just throw them a big Bible and say, start reading at the beginning. Uh, you probably never have done that and just read through, so maybe don't recommend it. Um, but, uh, but anyway, um, offer help for folks, and if you want to know how to read it, come talk. There's, it's a pretty fantastic thing to get into. Um, we're going to look at John chapter 11 tonight. Um, you, rem you may remember, if you've been with us, that John tells us exactly why he penned the gospel. And I already even used, I think, th these words a little bit ago. Um, he says in John chapter 20, this is, he tells us, like, this is why I wrote all of this in the gospel of John. 
that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That you may believe Jesus is the Christ, which, which translated could also be the Messiah. In other words, he is the one that God has been promising and will fulfill all of his promises to Israel through. So when you start in Genesis and you read about the promises God has for the world through Israel, Jesus is the crown of that. He is the fruit of that. He is the one through whom, by whom, and for whom all this comes. He's the Christ. And he's the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. This is what John set out to do. When you open John chapter 1 and you read that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, from that moment, John is intending to move you in such a way that, and to lay things out in such a way that you believe this. This is why he wrote it. He knew that there were stories circulating in his culture about Jesus, but digging back into his memory, he knew that if he could just highlight a few moments and show you how a few things fit together, we might see like he did how Jesus showed himself to be the Christ and the Son of God. This is what he's doing, right? So, so John spends half his book detailing six or seven distinct signs or miracles of Jesus. Up until this point, if you're reading through the Gospel of John and you get to hear, he's, he's, he has some very specific set of signs and conversations and controversies surrounding these signs. And John lists less than half of the miracles that the other Gospel writers list. But for him, each of the miracles that he lists is this sign that's pointing to something else. And so he wants you to see the sign and follow it to what it's pointing toward. Wine at a wedding, healing a sick boy and a paralyzed man, feeding thousands of people miraculously, restoring a man's sight who'd been blind since birth. Each of these reveals, John believes, and I do too, Jesus' divine power or points to the fact that in him the messianic promises made to Israel are being fulfilled. This is what John is trying to do. And along the way as this stuff happens, conversations take place about the nature of Jesus, this, who this man is and what is he doing. Some say he's a prophet. Some say he's just a great teacher. Over and over again, his disciples and the crowds and the religious leaders of his day, they take sides over and over again for him or against him. He tells us we need to be born again, that he's one with God, that he has the ever, everlasting water to give, and that we need to eat his body in order to live. These are comments that no one shrugs their shoulders to. They're activities, they're actions that no one just sort of yawns at. Everyone does something when Jesus moves or speaks. He's controversial. He's disruptive. You may have your favorite lovely verse that you want to tattoo on your body, but then you stumble across Jesus saying, you must hate your father and mother. I don't hate my mother, but so I'm trying to figure out how to do all that. She's here in the room. That's a really awkward verse to throw out. Uh, uh, but, but what happens when you hear Jesus say something like that? Do I just cut out a bunch of stuff I don't like that he says and skip over it? When I, when I take him whole, he's disruptive. I had a guy that was with me in my core group one year. He's a great friend of mine to this day. His freshman year of college, when we were sharing sort of what we thought about Jesus, I remember him saying, I really like Jesus, I just don't like Christians. And that sounded like the really popular thing for a lot of folks to say. And, and he said it, and I think he meant it. Two years later, after lots of Bible study, he said, man, I love Christians. I don't know how I feel about Jesus. I said, now we're talking. 
Because what you're telling me is that the people of God are loving you, but you're coming face to face with this Jesus who is calling you out. He's disruptive, like light shining in darkness. And everyone around him flees or draws close. There's no middle ground. And by the time we get to our story today, some had tried to kill him, some believed in him, there were plots to arrest him, lines were being drawn, and while he was laying low, there's this beautiful symmetry in the Gospel of John, because right before we come to this moment, which is the hinge moment in the whole Gospel, he's back at the River Jordan, where he was baptized, where he started his public ministry, and it's where he ends his public ministry almost too. Back in that time when we, 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 we heard prophetically John say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when Jesus began his public ministry, there was this <clears throat> voice of the one crying out in the wilderness saying, he is a sacrificial lamb. What does this mean? And we're about to find out. So he's laying low near the River Jordan and he gets this report that a man he loved had fallen ill. And the gospel writers don't talk about Jesus loving anybody like they talk about Jesus loving Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, these siblings, this family that he must have spent a lot of time with. He loved Lazarus, and Lazarus was ill. This is the report that he received. And we know the end of this story which is a strange thing for us because we just read it a second ago, so I'm assuming you all listened and know the end of the story. If you've never read it before, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Okay, anyway, we'll come back for a second. So here's the story that, that he's ill, okay? Um, uh, and he waited for two days before he did anything about this. And we don't know why. It's mysterious. This whole story is full of mystery. You're gonna hear me have some conjecture throughout the rest of this because we really don't know. But the mystery in this sort of draws me in. It doesn't keep me out, right? We, we know this end. We know that, that he was right on time, that Lazarus does in fact live again. But at this moment, it's such a strange thing for him to wait. Why did he wait for two days? Was he mourning? Maybe he knew that by the time he received the report, Lazarus was already dead. Maybe he knew that some, of some plot that would like interfere with the work that he was about to do. We don't know but he waited for two days. And, I, and I, I'm interested in that, I think, a little bit because isn't that the way we experience God so often? <laughs> that he delays when we want him to hurry. <laughs> when we look back and see, per perhaps, that he's been right on time so much. But when we experience him waiting right now in the present, in the midst of our hardship, it's almost unbearable. This is the kind of thing he was doing. He was waiting. And after he waits... For two days, then he actually sets off for this dead man whom he loves. And his disciples freak out a little because they know that if he goes near Jerusalem, if he goes near Jerusalem he, and he's caught, he's going to die. If you've been reading the story, you know that they're actually planning to arrest him and many of them want to kill him. And that's actually why he left the area in the first place and he's by the River Jordan. And now he's about to go back just two miles from Jerusalem to this town called Bethany. And so they're freaking out. And being his followers, they might die with him. So after this sort of weird conversation with them about light and dark and Lazarus sleeping, and which that means dying, Thomas, one of the disciples, says, let's go, that we may die with him. And maybe Thomas was dejected or fatalistic. You know, maybe Thomas was like, maybe he shrugged his shoulders as if to say, like, what else are we going to do? I, I don't know. 
maybe with courage and every fiber of his being, he knew that he was willing to die with Jesus. Maybe. In any case, he couldn't possibly know how much truth he spoke. Let's go that we may die with him in the fact that in Christ, all of us are buried into his death. And while Jesus was on his way from the River Jordan to, to Bethany, where Lazarus had died, Martha, who's a sister of, of Lazarus, hears about his coming and she tears off to meet him. And when she runs into him outside of the village, she says, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Isn't that interesting? Did you know this in, in, in the gospel accounts? No one ever actually dies in the presence of Jesus. And she believes that if he had just been there, she has heard the story, she'd seen him do healings and miracles. If only you had been there, Lord, he would not have died. But I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Martha, Jesus says. And she nods and she says, in confidence tells him that she knows, she knows her brother will rise again in the resurrection. She knows it. But instead of just nodding back to that, yep, I'm glad you have faith that Lazarus is gonna rise again in the resurrection. Instead of nodding back to that, Jesus replies with one of the most famous statements he ever made. Tyler, if you put that on the screen, that'd be um, helpful. Jesus says this, I'm sure you've heard it. I am the resurrection and the life. So she says, I know my brother will rise again in the resurrection of the dead. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. Now, listen, Jesus didn't disagree that Lazarus would rise in the last day. But he did acknowledge or say that resurrection is intrinsically bound up in him. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. If you want to live, if you want to live again, he stands before us still and he says, I am which is crazy mysterious. And she, she hears this, and instead of asking questions about the nature of the triune God or how you are the resurrection and we will be raised or any of that stuff, she hears him say this, and she runs back to grab her sister Mary because Mary had stayed behind on the ground mourning and crying when Martha got up to leave and go find Jesus. And unwilling or un unable to get up, we don't know, but when Martha comes back, she rose quickly, like resurrected from her mourning, and she went to meet Jesus where Martha had met him. And other questions come up. Why did Jesus stay there outside the village? Why not come? Is it because he wanted Mary to choose him? To come to him too, for her own sake? We don't know. But when Mary left him just outside the village, sorry, when Martha left him just outside the village, Mary waited, or he waited for Mary. And when she came to him, all of the Jews who were mourning with her, because we're told in the story that Wynne read earlier and from, from John chapter 11, that a bunch of Jews from Jerusalem and from the region gathered around to mourn with Martha and Mary for the death of Lazarus. Well, when she got up and she went running out to meet Jesus, she didn't, they, they didn't know why she was getting up because Martha whispered it to her. And so they thought she was going to the gravesite, And so they were going to go with her to mourn. And so she goes to meet Jesus and all these Jews are coming with her. So Mary and this crowd come upon the Messiah, the Son of God, and she says the same exact thing to him that Martha said, word for word, but on her knees in tears, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus, looking at her weeping, and all of her community who were weeping with her, he was moved and troubled, John says. 
He was overwhelmed with emotion, sadness. Jesus, sad and angry. And so he asked them, where have you laid him? And when they said, come and see, he simply wept. Jesus, knowing he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, wept. And friends, I think we need to see this. At the, at the moment in the gospel where Jesus' deity, the fact that he's God, is most clearly displayed, like he's about to raise somebody from the dead, we see his humanity most clearly on display as well. His deep emotions and empathy and his willingness to be vulnerable and break with us. And if you're attentive to the story or curious, you might ask why? Why? Why did he weep? If we know the end, why weep? If you know you're going to raise Lazarus from the dead, why is this a sad moment? Sometimes when one of my children falls like in our driveway, like I'll pick them up and I'll check, like, like, like I think I ought to do. I'll check to see like on their knees or their hands if they've scraped themselves and if they're bleeding. And if they're not, you know what I'm tempted to say all the, a lot? I'm tempted to tell them to shake it off. Like it's no big deal. There's no blood. You're okay. You're okay. In just a moment, you're going to be laughing and skipping again. And they're crying. And what I'm learning more and more is that it's far healthier, far more dignifying, far more intimate for me to meet them in that moment. Really meet them, not pretend. Like really identify with their pain. Hug them and simply say, I'm sorry you're hurt. And you know what? I can actually hurt with them. Regardless of whether I think it's not a big deal or it's just a small bruise or they're gonna, they can get up and be fine in a couple of minutes, I can actually sit with them and hurt with them in that moment and feel their pain. And then maybe when it's time, maybe I can remind them that they're going to be okay, but I swear to you it's good and it's right to meet them in that broken moment. And here Jesus is not just looking at someone who's like fallen and scraped at a knee, right? Like it's one of his friends that he loved in a family that he loved who's died. And attending to the separation that he was facing from his friend and looking upon how this death affects the others that he loves. Maybe he was even thinking about you and me in that moment. About the fact that we too taste death. All of us are gonna die. Or all of us have suffered and been hurt or mourned or grieved others who have died, or we will. It may be thinking about all the death that his bride would taste and experience brought him to his knees right here, and Jesus just wept. But his sadness was not unmingled from anger. Not anger at, at people's crying and mourning, not angered at Martha or Mary or me and you, or the Jews around them crying with her, he was angry at his enemy. Angry at the fruit of sin, which he did not bring into the world, but which he would take out of it. Death. Death is the last enemy that needs to be defeated. Do you know that? You should read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 sometime and be roused to hope and life by it. Death is an enemy, friends. And Jesus is angry at that moment and for, at the enemy death. And so Jesus was there weeping on his knees in sadness and then in anger rising. 
resurrecting to face his enemy and marching to the tomb of Lazarus, he commanded the stone to be rolled away and shouting his command with no special words, no pomp and circumstance, no seance of any kind, just meeting his enemy head on with a loud voice and the words of one pastor, like a champion approaches his foe. Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out. And within this miracle, there's another one buried, right? For his grave clothes must have loosened some when he came to life because he walked out on his own. And there was more to do. The bindings on his hands and feet and the linens wrapped around him, though loosed, they still needed to come off. And Jesus commands help from those around Lazarus to continue the work that he started. Friends, there's much in this. And just what you think might have happened next happened. From everybody who saw it, tons of them believed. And you would too, I suspect. Jesus makes a man come alive after four days of being dead. Tons of them believed. This man had been dead four days and Jesus called him to life in front of friends, in front of enemies. And some of them went and told the religious leaders around them what happened. Because you probably would tell the tale too. And you know what they said? If we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe him. These are his enemies. If you let Jesus continue to do what he's doing, everyone will believe him. Don't you see, some of you, I think, in this room, not, surely not all, but some of us in this room, we have this false notion that just because people lived like 100 years ago or 2,000 years ago, that they believed some like really harebrained stuff that you and I would never believe. C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. That's a phrase you should know. Chronological snobbery. Some of us think that just because we happen to be born later, we're smarter. But this is emphatically not true. The fact that a man came back to life was as crazy to them as it would be to you or me. And the religious leaders knew this. They knew the whole world would go after him. And all that they have worked for, all they'd worked so hard for would be at risk. And isn't that the same reason that many of us keep Jesus away? So let's kill him, they said. And they made plans for it. And in one of the most prophetic lines in all history, the high priest says, isn't it better for one man to die for a people than for a whole nation to die? Let's kill him. Wouldn't it be better for one man to die for this people than for the whole nation to die? Does it surprise you, friends, that this chapter sits in the very middle of the Gospel of John? It's literally the very middle. That this final miracle, this final sign, which is intended to show you who Jesus is, right? That's what John was intending to do. Who is Jesus? This is the one where he brings life to the dead at the cost of his own life. We're working on vocabulary here, so th this is the penultimate sign, right, in the Gospel of John. Jesus here is laying down his life for a friend. This is why his disciples did not want him to go to Jerusalem because they knew he'd die. Remember Thomas? Let's go that we might die with him. They knew what this meant. They knew what it meant when he set off for Lazarus. His life for Jesus' life. And in this central story, the story which prefigures Jesus' own death, we also see the most bold claim in the center of the Gospel of John, we see the most bold claim about who Jesus is on the lips of this woman, Martha. 
I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. Do you remember that John said that the entire reason he wrote this book was that people would believe just what Martha said? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And this is where the story turns, friends. For the first half of the book, there's this buildup of Jesus teaching and demonstrating who he is. And from this point forward, the whole last half of the book is about this week of Jesus leading up to his death and resurrection. It's as if John is saying, do you see who Jesus is in the first half? Now watch what he does in the second. And as February turns into March and we turn on the second half of the semester, we're gonna spend the coming weeks looking at what Jesus does for us. We've been talking about who he is for weeks and now what does he do? And, and these are never really separated, of course. They're totally integrated, but it might be helpful as a point of focus for us, especially as we enter into the season of the church calendar when we look forward to Calvary and Easter. And remember that Jesus set his face upon Jerusalem knowing it meant his death. For us, he says, come, let's go. He does this for you, friend. He does it for me. He can bring life from the dead. He will bring all who are in him into the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth. He invites us out of the grave. He opens doors, lifts up rugs, turns over rocks, shining light into the darkness. And don't we need this? to open and lift and turn, to awaken from our slumber, to breathe fresh air, to have our apathy replaced with desire, to know peace where all we know is anxiety, for him to bring comfort to those who mourn and to bring faith to the hopeless, to bring life out of death. Isn't that what we need? Isn't that what we want when we're being honest? Is that too much? Maybe. Perhaps it's too much for you to believe in this moment. Perhaps it's hard for you to believe that Jesus can do all those things. Heal relationships, satisfy desires, provide for you and sustain you. And it might be helpful just one more time to look at this interaction that Jesus has with Martha. I want you to pay attention to her response. Would you put that up again, Tyler, if it's not up? Jesus says, do you believe this, Martha? Jesus said who he is and what that meant for everybody. He says, do you believe this? That everyone who believes in me will live even after he dies? And her response is wonderful. She says, yes, but then she qualifies it. Do you believe this? Yes, I believe you are. Yes, I believe you. All that you said, Jesus, is wonderful. I believe you. In fifth grade, Coach Flores told my whole team that for the next seven days, while we laid in bed before we went to sleep, we were supposed to close our eyes and to very slowly imagine going through all of the motions of shooting a free throw. Now I was supposed to put my head on my pillow and close my eyes and imagine every single move and to see the ball swishing through the net. And I was supposed to watch that, like go through the motions slowly, imagine the ref grabbing the ball, dribbling below the hoop, pick it up and throw it to me and I would catch it. And I would do the little routine that I, that I did that I made two out of 10 free throws with, or one out of five, and I'd do the thing, and I'd, and I'd shoot it again, and I'd make it, and I'd have to, and he'd say, imagine it swishing, and do this 10 times before you go to bed in fifth grade. You remember him telling me this? And as a fifth grader, I remember thinking, how the heck is this going to help anything? Like, what in the heck? Okay, like, this is my, I'm supposed to pray, I guess, maybe, and, and apparently shoot 10 free throws in my dreams. I don't, whatever. As a fifth grader, and even still maybe, that sounds kind of crazy, but I did it. I did it. Do you know why? 
Why did I do it? Because I trusted Coach Flores. That's why. Not because I trusted what he said, but because I trusted him. Do you see the difference there? This is something that we do all the time. Like you're recommended and encouraged to do a thing, and you do it because you trust the source. One of my friends yesterday was telling me about this like breathing exercise he does. It's like, it sounds crazy to me. Uh, that he does three times every day. It's like some kind of fast breathing for like three minutes. I don't know, whatever. And that he gets this like feeling of euphoria from it and helps him focus. And now he's working on controlling his body temperature. Um, and honestly, it sounds like black magic and that he needs to confess his sin. Um, but, uh, but, but honestly, I've been thinking about it because I trust him. That's the way things work. I don't know, if I told you guys right, I just told you guys actually, this is a minute ago, go read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Maybe you have not been moved by a passage of the scriptures in your own Bible reading time in months. Some of you in this room will actually go read 1 Corinthians 15. Not because you think what I suggested is so genius, but because maybe you have a little trust in me. This is a normal interaction that we have with people that we trust. This is Martha's response to Jesus. I trust you. She sees him, and we need to see him, not just what he does. So friends, even raising Lazarus from the dead is a sign. Jesus raised him from the dead for sure. But you know Lazarus dies again, right? Like he dies again. It's not enough, in other words. Mary and Martha went through mourning all over again. What happened that day was so much more than just Lazarus raising from the dead, for as significant as that is. It was proof to those around Jesus, that he had power over death. It was a sign that this man looked into a tomb and he said, Lazarus, come out, and he came out. Lazarus' resurrection points to Jesus' power. He was the son of God and that if he said death wasn't the end, it wasn't because even death, like the wind, obeyed him. Raising Lazarus was a sign that points to who Jesus is. The reason I'm saying this is because perhaps you cannot or don't know how to believe that Jesus can give you hope where you've given up. That's okay. Because I think the invitation is for you to believe him. Not just all the things he says. I know that the light of Jesus is disruptive. I know this. I know it's easier for us to keep our heads down to go to sleep, to put off decisions that we need to make till tomorrow, to mail it in, to stay in the tomb. I know that his light shines in the darkness and when that happens, a battle is raged between the light and the dark and it cuts across our very hearts. I know that. And so the temptation is to stay under the covers or stay in the tomb, to keep our eyes closed and remain in the dark. But if you've been with us for all these weeks, don't you see what he's like? Did you see him providing for his bride, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, offering water that we thirst for and bread that we hunger for? And now in this story, do you see him bring the dead to life? And more, do you see what he's like? Weeping alongside of us and getting roused to anger for us, which we need, which you need, someone to be right beside you and someone to fight for you? And the one who does this is God himself. And friends, if God is for you, who could be against you? So when he calls and he says, come out, face the light because of who he is. In the coming weeks, friends, 
as we look on the season of Lent and come up on spring break and make decisions about the summer and living situations and next year's stuff, I want to encourage you and challenge you to notice, to begin to pay attention to where God is shining light into the darkness of your life. Maybe you're trying to close the door, I don't know. But where is he trying to shine light into the darkness of your life, calling you to come out and to come alive? I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is going to do things in your life that are so much better than you could ever imagine, but you wouldn't believe them even if I could tell you. I don't know what they are, but even if I did, you probably wouldn't believe them. What you need to believe is him, that he is who he says he is, and he demonstrates himself to be. The king is calling us out of the dark, and he has power over death. So come out and face the light. And we need to do this together. The scriptures tell us to gather together and pray for one another all the more as we draw close to the day when we meet this Jesus face to face. Let's pray. Father, I cannot imagine the I cannot imagine the joy that Lazarus will have when he's raised once again. <laughs> um, knowing after that one, he will never die. And I pray that your spirit um, helps us to wrestle with truth in history and wrestle with what's been recorded in history and what your son did that set the world on fire and that people were afraid of and wanted to kill him for. And if he could do those kinds of things that he did, maybe he knows something we don't know. If he has power over death, maybe he could have power over the death and darkness in our lives too. Even as we sing to you in the coming moments, would you shine your light into the darkness of our lives and help us to believe that your son is who he says he is. Having power over darkness and bringing life out of death. Weeping with us when we mourn, weeping with us when we mourn, and fighting for us against the enemies. Would you help us to believe this stuff? In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.